So if you need a set of notes, Larry's got some here, and it's page 17. And just a reminder about some of the things that uh, we have coming up. These are in your program, so keep your eye on that. But uh, we are gearing up for the beginning of the fall program. That always starts up in September. And we always encourage those who are leaders of our areas of ministry, various areas of ministry, to get with their respective teams before the beginning of the fall program for administrative matters, training, and so on. We set aside a number of Wednesdays for that purpose. So these next three Wednesdays are set aside for that. We have a number of meetings that have already been scheduled by various area, for various areas of ministry. To avoid conflicts on that, you need to email the email address that's in the bulletin. It's a ministry support at cbctrenton.com. And say what Wednesday you as a coordinator want to use for your team so that we can make sure we don't have another meeting going on that would inter- interfere with that, perhaps using some of the same, same people. So those meetings, ministry coordinators take uh, advantage of that. One week from tomorrow is Labor Day, and we always have a picnic on Labor Day. It's going to be again this year at the Lake Erie Metro Park. There's a $5 fee per vehicle to get in, so bear that in mind. But we ask you to bring a side dish, a dessert, and a beverage, and the church will supply the the main dish. And we always have a great time as long as the weather cooperates. We had a Memorial Day picnic there, uh, and it didn't cooperate. uh, So you never know. But when it does, it's always a good time. So hopefully that will happen, and we'd love to see you there. That's one one week from tomorrow. Uh, one, uh, two weeks from today, we're going to have uh, Missy Parker here from Bethany Christian Services, and that's a, an adoption agency, but they really uh, help churches with what they call orphan care in general. Adoption is one aspect of that, but there's also foster care, and there are other much lesser uh, things that you can do, uh, l- less elaborate, but nonetheless important, things like providing respite care for people who are in foster care or Uh, helping a special needs child or something like that. So Missy's going to talk about the different kinds of opportunities that exist for churches as a whole and uh, people in, members in particular. Uh, She'll be here two weeks from today, and she's uh, very engaging, as Pastor Matt said when he announced it, and uh, you'll want to be here for that. A lot of opportunities, and I'd like to see our church partner with them to help. uh, There are so, so, so very many kids who are in need, and we want to show the love of Christ to them as best we can. So that'll be uh, two weeks from today. But we also have a blood drive that we've been announcing, and that blood drive is going to happen a week from Thursday, September 5th, from 1.30 to 7.30, and we've got slots for that. We still have some slots available. Uh, This sign-up sheet that the Red Cross provided to us has been out on our information center for a few weeks, but I know how it goes. You get uh, tied up with a bagel and coffee and conversation, and you intend to sign up, and you forget. And this happens with every registration sign-up that we have. Uh, People intend to sign up. A smattering of people actually remember to do that. But then when I pass it around, then we've got more people than we need for that, and that's uh, that's a great thing. So uh, because that's coming up a week from Thursday, today and if need be next week, we're going to pass this around in this this hour, okay? So that's what that is. It's going to come by your way. I'll start it over here, and, uh, and if you guys will just pass it back, and then back to the front, over, back again, okay? 
And uh, Peggy, is Peggy in here? Peggy Charbonneau? She is at the, normally at the Information Center. She's still at the Information Center. So I need somebody who's going to make sure we get this because that's what happens. Somebody, you know, puts their Bible on top of it, walks home with it, and now that, that's happened before, okay? So Ed, were you? Okay, so Ed Martin will make sure that he does not let you get in your car with this, with this sheet, okay? So if you guys will see that, pass it around. Thank you. All right, page 17 today. As we continue our series, When We Have to Choose, which is about decision-making and the will of God. And if you've not been able to be with us for any or all of the uh, sessions that we've had, they are all recorded. All of these sessions are always recorded, as is our 930 worship hour messages, and they are at our website. So I encourage you to have the notes in hand and go back and listen then to what you might have missed, because I'm not going to take time to review all of that. But in the middle of page 17, we're dealing in this session about the need to have, a, have a, a guide that helps us know what it is we're supposed to do and places the parameters around how it is we make our decisions. And of course, that guide is God's Word. But God's Word has to be used as directed. If it's not used as directed, then it won't have the effect that God designed it to have. So we can misuse the Bible. We've laid out a few ways in which people do that. And now we want to, in the middle of page 17, talk about how to properly use the Bible. What kinds of rules of interpreting the Bible should we use so that we understand its meaning and can make application of it to our decisions? That's the objective of the middle of page 5. You see the middle there? It says then, playing by the rules. And it says Roman numeral 2. That should actually be Roman numeral 4. So if you go back a few pages, you'll have a 1, 2, and 3 Roman numeral. This should be 4 here, okay? Roman numeral 4, playing by the rules. And we call it playing by the rules, and we're going to see some uh, 4, actually, just straightforward rules for interpreting the Bible that I think will, I know will be helpful to you. But I want to I state this before we actually look at those rules, and that is one of the questions that many people ask about the Bible and those of us who believe the Bible and attempt to live by it is they say, you know, you really can't know what the Bible means clearly. Clearly you can't know. Because if you could know, there wouldn't be so many what? Why are there so many interpretations? And there are lots of interpretations. And I've been asked that question many times. You've probably been asked that or perhaps have asked that. Why are there so many interpretations? Now, it would be wrong, it would be an error for me to say that there are not issues and particular passages in the Bible that are notoriously difficult to interpret. There are. There are some. But they are relatively few. Relatively few issues and relatively few passages. Um... The truth is, the reason we have so many interpretations is because we don't all play by the same rules. And that's why this playing by the rules is important. And so as we go through these rules of interpreting, you need to ask yourself, are those rules correct? Are they accurate? Are these things that I really should apply, or is, is Brown off base in one or more of these, these rules? These are not mine, you'll be glad to know. People smarter than me came up with these. But they're important because if you adopt then those rules, you will then consistently apply them, hopefully, 
to your interpretation of the Bible, and then we will come out with not precisely consistent interpretations, because as I say, there are some difficult to ascertain passages, but they are relatively few. We will come out with more consistent interpretation of the Bible, because we're applying the same rules to it. Okay? So that's what we mean in the middle of page 17, playing by the rules. The process by which we come to know God's will contained in the Bible is study. For believers, the Holy Spirit does a work of illumination that causes him to understand the true significance of Scripture. But the meaning of a Bible passage is only obtained by careful study. So here's what we're saying in that, in that paragraph, is that you can come to any passage of Scripture, and if you're willing to do the work of applying the rules to studying it, then you can get what the meaning of that is. But the meaning is not enough. You have to care about what it means. And caring about what it means is the significance. And it's the Holy Spirit that turns the light on in the mind of a believer so that he or she cares about and sees the overall significance of what a particular passage means. To put it another way, you don't have to have the Spirit to get what a passage means. If you're just willing to study it, then you can do that. But only a believer is going to welcome that and accept that and care about that. And in fact, Paul says that, the Bible says that in 1 Corinthians chapter 2. We have it listed for you here. The man without the Spirit, that is the unbeliever, does not accept the things that come from the Spirit of God. And that word accept, you see, is highlighted there. That's the word that's translated accept is a word that's elsewhere translated welcome or receive. So you could say there, the man without the Spirit does not welcome the things or does not receive the things that come from the Spirit of God. John chapter 1 and verse 11. Many of you know this passage, but uh, John says of Jesus in John chapter 1, He came to His own, but His own did not, do you remember what it says, did not receive him. So Jesus came to his own people, namely the Jews. Jesus is born into Jewish lineage as the Jewish Messiah. He comes to his own, but his own do not receive him. But that's the word, the same word in John 1.11, receive him, but as many as received him, he gave the power to become the sons of God. So that's what the word that's translated here, accept, means. It means to receive or to welcome the things that come from the Spirit of God. And only the person who has the Spirit does that because they're foolishness to the person who does not have the Spirit, and he cannot understand them. Now, because the explanation is given, they're spiritually discerned. It does not, when it says he, he does not understand, it doesn't mean he can't put the grammar together and see a sentence like 1 Corinthians chapter 15 and verse 3. 1 Corinthians 15, 3, Christ died for our sins. Can an unbeliever understand the meaning of that? The answer to that is yes. You know, a person with the title Christ died and claimed to do that for the sins of other people, okay? An unbeliever can understand the meaning of that then. But do they welcome that? Do they accept that? Clearly not. By definition, an unbeliever does not accept or welcome that. If they did, then they would be a believer, they would have the Spirit, and so on. So the Holy Spirit, as we study the meaning of the Bible, then does a work on the mind of a believer so that he or she 
appreciates the, the significance of what that means, welcomes it, receives it, accepts it. But it's all based on study. You have to study the Bible. And I, I know that's disappointing. And here's how I know that, because I've been a pastor for a while now. And I know that most of us would like the lazy man or lazy woman's way out. We, would, we wish God would just infuse this into us. Can't you just inject the Bible into me? Isn't there a pill for that? Can I wait till the movie comes out? I mean, we're trying all kinds of stuff, Okay. But there's only one way to do this, and you've got to do the hard work of actually studying it. Years ago at our parent church, our uh, senior pastor, Pastor Thomas, at Huron Baptist, and I were counseling a guy, and uh, this guy, uh, he's, he's long gone. I don't even know where he is, so nobody you know. But he was one of the laziest people I've ever met in my life. And Pastor Thomas is laying out to him, if you want to get a handle on this problem we're talking about, you're going to need to apply Scripture to the situation, which means you're going to have to study the Bible. And he's going through what he needs to do and all of that. And this guy says to him, quote, well, can't we just hold hands and pray? Now, it was worth being there just to see Pastor Thomas's look. <laughs> but how many people really, that's what we want. Can't we just hold hands and pray and hope then I just get infused with it? But there is no substitute, even for those who have the Spirit, the Spirit only does its work of illumination when we actually do the work of study. So we take the, the Scriptures, we put it in its context, we play by the rules that we're going to see, and then the Spirit turns the light on for us. Having studied the Word of God then, we must then make application of its truth to our circumstances. And this requires that we ask relevant questions of each passage that we study. The Scripture Union, that's an organization that's provided Bible reading and study materials since 1867, recommends that at least three questions be asked of each passage that you consider. Here they are. What does this passage say about God? What does it say about people? And what should I do with it? And those are three very helpful questions. And one of the reasons they're very helpful is because they apply to any passage you will look at in Scripture. Even in the first part of your Bible, the Old Testament, all of those passages say something about God. They teach something about people. And since God and people haven't changed, now you can make application of what it says about God and about you to your life. Now, in the class that we're going to start September 18th on Wednesday nights that we ask everybody to go through in our church, it's part of our Community Institute, the very first rung on the ladder of classes is called How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible. So if you've never taken How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, then I uh, encourage you to come to that class. I'll, I, I teach that. And we have three sections to that class, uh, a survey of the Bible, how to interpret the Bible, and how to apply the Bible, those three sections, okay? And we'll go through two semesters together going through those issues. And we'll see some of these rules at that time and we'll spend some time looking at how to apply, after we've uh, used the rules, how we apply passages to our lives. And one of the things we do is this very thing. What does this say about God? What does this say about me? How then can I apply that to, to my life? 
Now, how much does the Bible address? That's your blank there. How much does the Bible address? So, the Bible's our guide if we're going to make God-honoring decisions. I have to interpret it properly in order to ascertain its meaning and then apply it. But one preliminary question is, well, how many of the issues that I'm faced with does the Bible address? How much does it actually uh, refer to and apply to? The issues which the Bible addresses are unlimited. John Frame rightly contends that the scope of biblical teaching is universal, and he quotes Cornelius Van Til saying this, top of page 18, from a viewpoint that's governed by sola scriptura. It's a Latin term that means the Scriptures alone are our foundation for all that we believe and all that we practice. That's what that means. So from that standpoint, from someone who believes in the Bible alone as my ultimate authority for what I believe and what I do, the scope of Scripture, the range of subject matter to which it can be applied is unlimited. As Van Til says, there's a sense in which Scripture speaks of everything. We do not mean it speaks of football games or atoms and so on directly. But we do mean that it speaks of everything either directly or indirectly. It tells us not only of the Christ and His work, but also tells us who God is and whence the universe has come. It gives us a philosophy of history as well as history. Moreover, the information on these subjects is woven into an inextricable whole. It is only if you reject the Bible as the Word of God that you can separate its so-called religious and moral instruction from what it says, for example, about the physical universe. Now, that last line there is for people who try to say, yes, the Bible is God's Word, but only part of it's God's Word. Only the part that deals with so-called salvation history or spiritual matters. But when it speaks of history, when it speaks of science, then it's not authoritative. It is not infallible. It is, in fact, errant and uh, fallible, say they. Well, if it's God's Word, then it is God's Word in its entirety. And further, I have no earthly idea how you think you can trust God in one area of the Bible if you don't trust Him in another area. The truth is, if you lied to me once, what's to keep you from lying to me twice? Okay? And so the Bible you take as a whole, you accept as a whole, or you reject as, as a whole, and that's what Van Til is saying here. And if you do that, if you take it as a whole, it addresses everything, either directly or indirectly. God says that the purpose of Scripture, as we saw a couple of weeks ago in 2 Timothy 3, is to equip us for every good work. And every good work reminds us that God's Word is sufficient. That is all we need. I mean, think about it. That's quite a claim. <laughs> that Scripture equips us for every good work. Yikes. Every is a big word, right? I mean, that covers a lot of ground. And yet the Bible makes that claim that it is sufficient to do that. For us. There is no good work for which we must turn outside of Scripture for answers. This means that every decision is tied to the mission for which we are called. Whether it's the car we buy, a job we take, the leisure we enjoy, they're all governed by God's revealed will about His mission and our participation in it. And then we apply those principles and that teaching to the decision at hand. So how much does Scripture cover? Everything, directly or indirectly. Now, how is it that I know what the Bible says? And this is where we get to playing by the rules. Because the Bible's composed of human elements, and those human elements are chiefly two. Humans wrote it, 
composed it, and it was written in human languages. Because it has both of those elements to it, then it has to be interpreted as normal human communication. Now, if you don't, if you don't get this that right, you're lost with the Bible. If you take an approach that says, because the Bible is God's Word, and it is, because the Bible is God's Word, therefore, it needs to be interpreted in a unique way. There's some funky way that you've got to interpret the Bible. As opposed to recognizing that, yes, it is God's Word, but the God whose Word it is superintended, oversaw the composition of the 66 books of the Bible using human human beings and human language to pen precisely what he wanted written. So it's God's Word, but it's got these human elements in it. So it speaks to me the way any other human would speak to me. It speaks to me in words, in sentences, in paragraphs, in story form, in whole books, and I have to interpret it accordingly. Now, a lot of, you, a lot of people get, miss that and then you're lost. So they say, well, it's God's Word, so I need a God way of interpreting it. Well, what would a God way of interpreting the Bible be? Pray about it, and God, the meaning will just pop into your mind. People do this. People play this sort of spiritual roulette with the Bible. I want to make a decision. I actually know people who have done this. You probably do as well. I need to make a decision. A spiritual way of doing this would be to pray about it and ask God to just lead me to a passage. So, Lord, when I'm done praying, I'm going to open it, and it's going to, you're going to lead my eyes to the right passage. So I pray about it, open, and Judas hanged himself. Okay. <laughs> Let me try that again. <laughs> then you pray about it some more. This time it's going to take. And you open, and your eyes go to, Go thou and do likewise. <laughs> And this just does not work, does it? Now, people do that sort of stuff. People do it in so-called Bible studies. You perhaps have been in Bible studies where we gather around, we read a verse, and we go around and we say, what does that verse mean to you? And then whoever you is spouts off whatever it means to them. And then we go to the next person, what does it mean to you? It may mean something totally different to them. And as we're going to see with the rules, how many meanings does a passage have? Meanings. It's got one meaning. Now, there are lots of ways that that meaning now can be applied to our situations. That's application is different than meaning. So Bible studies then, if we don't get this idea that this is normal human communication and therefore needs to be interpreted accordingly, if we don't get that, we will look for esoteric kinds of ways to interpret the Bible. And then we would get people going around pooling really our ignorance about what the Bible means. So we need to see that, yes, it is God's Word, but God superintended the production of Scripture. Human beings wrote it, and they wrote it in human language, and it is regular human language like English is. And so we interpret it that way. So with that, what are some of the rules of interpretation? First is this. A text cannot mean what it never meant. 
A text cannot mean today what it never meant when it was written. It means today, as a matter of fact, what it meant when it was written. So, when Moses penned the first five books of the Bible, what it meant to Moses and meant to those for whom Moses wrote is what it means for you and me. And it can't mean something different today than what it meant then, which means I'm going to have to set it in context. What did it mean then? In order to put it in its historical context, its grammatical context, and so on. Now, in our How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, have I plugged that enough? We look at the historical context, the grammatical context, um, the literary context as, as well. But you have to set it in context in order to understand what it meant so that we then know what it still means. A text cannot mean what it never meant. So I give the example. There's a, unfortunately, there are a zillion of them that could be given. But Genesis 1.16, some of you have heard me give this example. I've got a book of sermons on my shelf by a guy who believed that the way you interpret the Bible is through some esoteric way, and he preached for decades that way. He had a Bible college. He spawned pastors out there who are doing that to this very day. As I stand here and speak to you, there are people preaching the Bible, supposedly, but they're interpreting it in this kind of crazy way. And here's an example. In that book of sermons, he's got a sermon from Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16. Now, Genesis chapter 1 and verse 16 just has this phrase in it. And he made the stars also. That's the entirety of Genesis 1.16. He made the stars also. Now, let's try to put that in context so that we can know what a text meant and therefore know what it means. You all are familiar with Genesis 1? That would be the first chapter in your Bible, right? And you remember how it starts in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth? And then it begins to say, go through the days of creation and say on the first day God created some things and the evening and the morning were the first day. And then he created some more things and the evening and the morning were the second day and so on. And then the Bible says, and he created the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And then you come to verse 16 and it says, and he made the stars also. So here's my contextual interpretation of the meaning of Genesis 1.16. And he made the stars also means this. In addition to other stuff God made, he made stars. Everybody good? That's what that means because that's what it meant. Here's his sermon. The sermon has three points. God cares about little people, little places, and little projects. You say, yikes. I mean, does God care about little people? Yes. Does he care about little places? Yes. Does he care about little projects? Yes. Does Genesis 1.16 teach any of that? The answer is no. So how did he get that? And if you read the sermon, if you listen to the sermon, here's how. You know, some people are big stars. But you may not be a big star. You may just be a regular person. But God cares about the little things too. God cares about little stars. And he made the stars also. And he goes on, and I mean, you're crying by the time you're done. I'm crying because of the interpretation. (laughs) 
But other people are crying just because he knows how to do a tearjerker. I mean, he's talking about all these little people that God cares about, these little forgotten places and all of that. But by the time you're done with that, you have no earthly idea what Genesis 1.16 is about. And more tragically, you come away from that thinking that's the way you use the Bible. And so that's the way people use the Bible in their individual lives. And so John MacArthur says, you know, people who preach like that could literally, they could just preach little Bo Peep. I mean, you could just start out, our text today is little Bo Peep. And people go, is that in the Bible? I guess so. <laughs> he said so. He's a pastor. Little Bo Peep. You know, and your first point is, you know, she had problems. She was little. And she's a girl named Bo. Okay? And she was in difficult circumstances. She had lost her sheep. Okay, have you ever lost anything? And then you just go on. Now, you know, we laugh, but the truth is there's preaching like that, isn't there? And it's not what the text says. So a text cannot mean what it never meant. And that's why... You know, and, and we continually, I continually, Pastor Matt and those of us who teach, we continually try to get better at it. And until the Lord returns or takes us home, we'll try to get better at it. Of trying to not only put a passage in its context, but try to make it somewhat applicable and interesting. That's a hard thing to do. But I tell you, I am more interested in making sure we get it accurate than I am about how much people love it, you know, how... Uh, how much it tickles people's fancy because it's a sacred responsibility to open the Bible and say this is what God said. And to say this is what God said means you have to do the study of what did it mean when it was written to the people to whom it was written. So a text cannot mean what it never meant. Second, all texts are not alike. All texts are not alike. The Bible has 66 books in it and they're different. They're not all the same. So many people look at the Bible and they just look at it as all one big piece of a certain kind of, of literature. For many people, it's one big book of Revelation. You know, the last book in your Bible? So the book of Revelation is a particular type of book because it's got all these symbols in it. If you've read through the book of Revelation, you know, you've got the seven stars and you've got the seven lampstands and the seven bowls and the seven trumpets and they all represent different things. So for some people, the whole Bible is... It all represents something else. And so they read it that way and they preach and teach it that way. So you look at the parable that Jesus gave of the rich man and, and Lazarus. And Lazarus begged for the crumbs that fell from the rich man's table. Remember that? I mean, I've heard sermons now about what the crumbs represent and what the legs on the table represent. The Bible is just one big book of symbolism and you interpret the symbols out of it. Well, the book of Revelation is a book of symbols. It's a particular type of book, and you have to interpret it that way. But there are another 65 books in the Bible that are not that. They're different kinds of books. Some of them are narrative. That is, they're narrating, telling a story. And you interpret it that way. Some of them are parables. Some of them are poetry. Some of them are letters. And they all are to be interpreted in their own right according to the type of book that it is. All texts are not alike. So a text cannot mean what it never meant. All texts are not alike. And then thirdly, the Bible has only one meaning. 
or a text has only one meaning. The Bible differs from other human commu- communication in one respect. So I've said that it's composed by human authors, human languages, therefore can be interpreted according to human rules of interpretation. But there is this one very important way in which the Bible is different than the newspaper, a magazine, or anything else. And that is, although it was composed by several human authors, it has one ultimate author, that is God. And since there's ultimately a single author of the Bible, it has internal consistency. That means the Bible will never contradict itself. I mean, how do we manage this? That you've got 66 books that were written over a 1,600-year period. So the first book was written at least 1,600 years before the last one was written. Written at different times within that 1,600-year spectrum. Written by different people from different backgrounds. You put them all together in a book, and how is this thing possibly going to agree? I mean, I know how the Koran... Actually, the Koran manages to contradict itself, even though it was written by one guy at one time, let alone 40 different guys over 1,600 years. That's a miracle in itself, that then you could have internal consistency to this. I mean, think about it. You get five people in a room today, today, and try to get them to agree on a subject. To take a book then written over that period of time, 40 different authors, and then have them to agree, it is because although God used these 40 human authors to compose what he wanted written, ultimately superintending all of that is one author, and that is God. So it has internal consistency. It has unity. It will not contradict itself. And so the following interpretive rules flow from the fact that the Bible communicates a unified message. Do this, these two things, A and B. Interpret difficult passages in light of those who are, that are clear. So you read through the Bible, and you read John 3.16. God so loved the world, He gave His only begotten Son. The NIV says His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish, but have everlasting life. Okay, you read that, and you come away, rightly, saying, if someone believes in the present, in Jesus, who He is and what He did, then they will live forever. And if you, if you come away with that, you would come away with the right interpretation. So now you read that. But then, you know, you go to passages like James chapter 2 and verse 14, and James says, faith, believing, same word, believing without works is dead. So if a person says they believe, but they don't do these kinds of things, they have nothing. So John 3.16 is telling me, if I believe, I've got life forever. And James is going, not so fast. You know, there's believing and there's believing. So how do you put those together? Well, the one thing you can do when you read those, that face, and you go, boy, I've got to work on that a little bit, is you can know that whatever they both mean, it's going to be consistent because God is ultimately behind them both. And then you can begin to look at them more closely. And you come to recognize that James is answering a particular question. And the question is, what kind of faith saves? What kind of faith saves? It is faith, James believes, as did John, who wrote John 3.16, as did Paul, who wrote Romans, Galatians. It is believing, 
through which we are saved. But James is answering now the question, what kind of faith does that? He believes like John did, like Paul did, that we are saved through faith, through believing. But it's a kind of faith that obeys. And if we have a belief and a faith that does not obey, then that is not the kind of faith that John 3.16 is talking about or that the book of Romans or the book of Galatians is talking about. Those can be put together, but you interpret those that are difficult in light of those that are clear. Okay? And you can do that because you know it ultimately has one author. And then secondly, interpret each biblical book in light of its overall biblical context. So here's what that means. I go through this in some detail in How to Get the Most Out of Your Bible, using an example of speaking in tongues, the issue of speaking in tongues and how that is addressed in 1 Corinthians chapter 14. But then we take 1 Corinthians 14 and we want to place it in its overall biblical context. And as we do that, we find that the very first time speaking in tongues ever occurred in the chronology of the Bible is actually in a different book, Acts chapter 2. And when we go to Acts chapter 2, we find that speaking in tongues was people speaking in languages, human languages they had never learned, and the people who heard them understood those human languages. So the first time this ever occurred, that's what it was. And then we look at 1 Corinthians 14, and we put it in its overall biblical context, and we remember that 1 Corinthians was written of almost 30 years after the events of Acts chapter 2. So you had several decades that have transpired now. And in those several decades, the Corinthians had gone crazy. How's that? How do I know they had gone crazy? Read the 16 chapters of 1 Corinthians. They're fighting with each other. They're going to court against each other. They're saying, I'm of Peter, I'm of Paul, I'm of Apollos, I'm of Christ. They're tolerating gross immorality within their uh, fellowship. They've got all sorts of problems about divorce and remarriage, chapter 7. They don't, they're still frequenting, some of them, the pagan temple in the center of the city of Corinth where there's pagan, uh, temple prostitution. They don't know whether they should be eating the meat that's been offered there and sacrificed to idols. And they're, they messed up spiritual gifts. They messed up the Lord's table, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. Some of them are getting drunk at the Lord's table. Other than that, these guys have it together. Now, here's the irony of all that. Our charismatic Pentecostal friends, and I say that genuinely because I grew up Pentecostal. Uh, some of my loved ones, some of my best friends are still Pentecostal. And we disagree, and they'll get that all straight at the pearly gates. So my friends, one of the first places they will go to show you the reason they do what they do is 1 Corinthians 14. And as you put it in its overall biblical context, here's what you find Paul is doing. He's not commending what they're doing. He's actually condemning what they're doing. He's saying, you guys are speaking languages nobody understands. And you know, speaking in tongues is languages that people understand. I, Paul, speak in tongues more than all of you. Paul spoke five languages. But when I come into the church, I would rather speak five words in an intelligible tongue than 10,000 words in an unknown tongue. That's what he tells them. He's condemning what they're doing. 
But if you don't get these rules straight, you don't put it in this overall biblical context, you're not going to go to 1 Corinthians 14. It's just a book. You can just open it up. You don't have to put it in this context. There it is, talking about speaking in tongues. It's in the Bible. It's actually talking about speaking in tongues people don't understand. It's in the Bible. Therefore, it must be okay. And indeed, it does talk about speaking in tongues that nobody understands, and it's condemning it. So if you're not careful that way, you'll come away with a false interpretation. And the truth is the reason that our Pentecostal and charismatic friends have differing interpretation with regard to that is not because it cannot be understood, but because we don't play by the same rules. So if you're going to know the meaning of the Bible, you've got to play by the rules. And those, just those three rules and then those sub-rules will be of immense help to you. And we'll elaborate on those in the how to get the most out of your Bible, okay? All right, let's pray. And then we'll see you next week, Lord willing. Father, we thank you for this time that we can spend looking at these truths regarding the book that you have given us. Lord, it is our guide for us to make decisions, big and small, but we have to use it as you've directed. You've given it to us in a particular form and format for us to interpret it according to the way you've given it. Help us to be faithful in that, both in our public ministry here at the church in our private lives as we study your word. And then, Lord, help us to make wise application of it to the decisions you call us to make. Go with us this week, we ask you, grant us safety, and bring us back together next Lord's Day. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.